0: Father, just thank you for that sound of the rain, even for for those of us who had to brave the floodwaters to get here this morning. And I thank you for, for all the pictures and times throughout Scripture that you've used, that analogy of rain and rivers of living water to signify your presence that is alive and amongst your people. Your word says that we're to come all who thirst, all who are thirsty to know you and Out of those who hunger for you will flow rivers of living water. So I pray for fresh life this morning. I pray for fresh joy where that's needed. Pray for that encouragement that comes from your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're the lifter of our heads for those who are downcast and discouraged. Would you open our eyes and our hearts to see and behold you afresh and the glory and the wonder of who you are. Use this time and use your word this morning, we pray. May it go forth with your grace, the touch of your spirit, your power and presence to accomplish great things for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's grab our Bibles. We're going to go quickly to Acts chapter 5. We're continuing our series, looking at some of the elements of the early church, how it formed, what it looked like, what God was doing in their midst. And if you've been following along, we've just finished a, an encounter that resulted from the healing of the beggar at the gate, beautiful, who after 40 plus years of being paralyzed was miraculously healed and of course there was much joy and there was much controversy. The, um, some of the apostles were arrested, they were released, they gathered together And they gathered to pray and say, God, give us boldness to continue to proclaim who you are and what you've done. And we're going to pick up the account now from verse 11. But let me give you a little bit of context. So we had the believers praying for boldness. We had a passage that we looked at a few weeks ago, picking up on this theme of the community and the unity within which the disciples gathered. In fact, if you read the end of chapter 4 there, it says... Great grace No idea what that is, but it sounds great. Not just a normal grace. There was such a great grace that was at work amongst the the believers, not just the the disciples and the apostles, but all the believers they were so moved by what God was doing in their midst that it says that they sold everything that they had, and they came and they brought the proceeds at the foot to, to the feet of the apostles and said, Use this for whatever is required there's not a needy person among them and yet in the midst there and we've already covered this particular passage and we're heading for uh, verse 11 of chapter 5 but just so that we're all up to speed in the midst of this great grace in the midst of this season where people were bringing everything they had laying it at the feet of the disciples and we think well what what a wonderful honeymoon period of the church this is amazing God uh, is at work and certainly he was. And then all of a sudden there's this very little uncomfortable parenthesis. this little story of Ananias and Sapphira. Most of us would be aware of what happened. So as everybody was bringing things, laying everything they had at the feet of the apostles, they sold some property and they made it look like they too were coming to lay everything at the feet of the apostles and yet they kept something for themselves. And Peter finds out, we don't know how, but he questions Ananias. First of all, he brings him in and he says, Is, what's going on here? Have, have you sold your property for so much and brought this money in? He says, yes, yes. It's a blatant lie. And then instantly in that moment, if you read the account, it says Ananias drops dead in front of him. Quite a confronting scene. So the young men come and they carry this body out. And then his wife comes in a short time later, and Peter asks her the same question. He says, well, you know, is, is this what happened? Yes, yes, she, she lies as well. And he says, why have you two conspired together to test the Lord? You're not just lying to me, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And in the same way that her husband dropped dead, she drops dead. It says the young men who have just buried this other guy, they come back in, and there's another body laying at the altar, and they carry her out As well. This strange, strange scene that we talked about, as I said a few weeks ago, talking about, well, there's a lot of mystery there, but it certainly shows us that in the early church, there was a zero tolerance. God took so seriously the the preservation of what was happening that there was no capacity for Him to allow any sort of self seeking interest, any sin that was going to come and corrupt the early church. And really, that's where we're heading this morning. You see, and in many ways, we've already been there. We've already sort of lived the sermon this morning, coming just to worship and remember his holiness. But yes, God is loving. Yes, he is. We never want to lose sight of his love. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, he is good. The Lord is good. These are wonderful tenets for us to remember, to build and to base our lives upon. But yes, he is a just and righteous God. Scripture said he is the judge. He will judge the living and the dead. So what I want us to focus on after the strangeness of that particular count and occurrence that we read in Scripture is verse 11. So we've just seen it says the young men have come, they've found um, Sapphira dead, they've dragged her out. Verse 11 says this, and great fear... Underline that word there, fear. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? You go to church service and people start dropping dead. I mean, that, that produces a kind of response. You can't see that and then just pretend like nothing happened. It says, great fear. Fear came upon the whole church. But what's interesting is what comes after that. And I know in my Bible there's a little division there, but really this is the one flow of what Luke is describing. This event has happened. Great fear has come and now being as an instant result of that which has just happened and occurred in the midst of the church. It says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and you can kind of understand that, can't you? Like, they're like, Whoa, there's something happening here, but we're not so sure we want to set foot in this building. Like, we saw those bodies being dragged out. There's only so many ways you can put a positive spin. Come to church, come and meet Jamaica. I don't know how you'd phrase it in a way that kind of entices people in. So, so there was this. Fear and his reverence of the people, but they 're kind of standing at a distance we you know we, we want to make sure our hearts are right, so otherwise we 'll be a part of this this new ministry of taking out the dead bodies to bury them and so it says, none of the rest dared them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord like we 've seen some incredible evangelical impact. Peter preaches a sermon, three thousand added the crowds are gathered as this This crippled man is healed. But it says, more than ever before, there's something here that has produced salvation, signs and wonders, miracles and salvations, like they've not seen before or up to this point. And it goes on to describe even some crazy things. It says, so that even they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them, The people gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Pretty incredible little account of what God was doing in the midst of the early believers. Now, if this was the only instance of something like this, there's great fear, and all of a sudden that fear kind of produces some sort of a response, there's this reverence and awe and as a result great salvations and great miracles that are occurring, we could probably write it off just as an isolated event. Okay, it was one unique moment in the life of the church where God was doing something different. But what I want us to see very quickly is this is a theme that Luke picks up in other parts as he describes how the early church functions. So grab your Bibles really quickly and let's go back to the beginning. Acts chapter 2 verse 43. This, of course, is we've been here before. It's right back at the beginning of the church. The Holy Spirit has just come. Peter's stood up. He's preached his first message. There's 3,000 people who were, who were saved. And then in verse 42 and verse 43, it says, they being the new believers, this group who'd come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they devoted themselves to the teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread and the prayer. And this verse here, 43, it says, and or... Translated here, all this is actually the very same word that we just read in Acts chapter 5. Or. literally means fear. The word is phobias, from which we get our word phobia. So same word here. It says, and awe came upon every soul. There's awe, there's the fear of the Lord, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostle. And then it off, finishes off in verse 47. It says that, the Lord himself added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So isn't that interesting? We see the same progression. There's this sense of awe, of fear, if you like. We'll talk in a moment about exactly what that is, of of reverence, of a recognition of who God is. And as a result, what happens? There's a great move of his power and presence. There's signs and wonders, and there's people who are added to their number every day. Just one more example. Let's jump forward then. To Acts chapter 9 verse 31. Last passage of scripture and then we'll just unpack and develop this a little bit. But we, we will get here, we're fast forwarding the story a little bit just to, to grab this particular context but at this point Paul, uh, Saul who has become Paul, he's been converted, there's persecution that has begun to arise within the church People are out to kill him, obviously. At one point he was persecuting those people who believed in Christ. Now he's proclaiming Christ that everybody should believe in them. All sorts of strange things that are going on. In the midst of that context, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. So we've spread now, we're moving out. There's been a great work of God to expand the mission of gospel as Jesus proclaimed it would starting where they were in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So in the whole region, it says the church had peace, was being built up. And here we go, the second half of verse 31, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort, some translations say, in the presence, in the power of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, a much abbreviated account, but the same theme, isn't it? What, what marked the early church? It says they walked in the fear of the Lord. Same word. And in the comfort, in the presence, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and what was the outflow of that? There was multiplication. That already multiplied, and it's about to just go ballistic and spread, as the Lord himself prophesied it would, from the local area into the nations. So the point is simply this, throughout this period of the early church, as Luke pens this description of of what marked the early church, continually he comes back to this reality. It obviously was important enough for him, significant enough for the Holy Spirit to prompt him in this direction, to make mention repeatedly that there was this sense of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord was present in the midst of the believers, not just On one occasion, but continually, not just when people were dropping dead. I mean, that certainly produces a level of fear. But as the Holy Spirit comes, as persecution arises in all these different settings, what marked the believers was this sense of fear, the fear of the Lord. And that as as a result of this sense of the fear of the Lord, of awe and, and reverence and recognition of who He is, there was His power at work in the midst of the people. There were signs, there was wonders, and there was salvations. And we're going to look at that particular link. But let's talk, first of all, before we get there, well, what is this fear of the Lord? And we could develop this, we could do a whole series on the fear of the Lord, because it's not something that's just mentioned here. In fact, there's at least 140 plus references in the Bible to fearing God. Here's a few. It says, the fear of the Lord, 27 times it appears... Uh, the f- fear of the Lord is thirty three times fear God seventeen times, fear the Lord appears ten times, and so on and so forth and not all of these are in the Old Testament. We looked at three in the New Testament and there 's another twenty others are uh, references to the fear of the Lord that are new testament it 's not just well that, that was old Testament that was old covenant you know they were they were under the law there was fear there and now that Where under grace there is no fear. Well, it's still very much present in the early church. So you'd have trouble arguing and taking that particular line. And then, of course, as we think about this, I'm sure for many of us, we think, well, hang on a sec, we're talking about fearing the Lord, but doesn't it say in passages, Isaiah 41, it says, Fear not. God says, Fear not. Do not be afraid. Paul, of course, says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, 7, he says, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. He was addressing Timothy's timidity. You know, he was a preacher of a large church and he obviously struggled at times with timidity, with self-esteem perhaps, with, we don't know exactly, but he says, God's not given you a spirit of fear. Don't let fear cripple you from what God has called you to do. And then, of course, another favourite, 1 John 4.18, God says that his love, his perfect love, casts out fear. So which is it? it where to fear or to not fear? And I would say the answer is both. The answer is yes. Yes all around. Let me explain what I mean. This, This is the way that I would approach this. If it helps, grab a hold of it. If it doesn't, find your own way, that's fine. But there is, if you think, just even in the natural, before we talk about the fear of the Lord, there is a good fear and there is a bad fear. There's also a godly fear, and we'll get to that in a few moments. But there is a good fear. See, fear sometimes has a bit of a bad rap. We think of fear as a bad thing. But there's a healthy fear. For example, um, my wife and I, as we've raised our children, we've always said to one another, we want to make sure our kids have a healthy fear of water, as a country that we live in, there's uh, opportunities all around for our kids to get in trouble with water. So we want them to have a healthy fear, a healthy respect of water. In fact, I was always told as I grew up from my dear mother, who's not here this morning, but she said, one, one of the biggest problems with you, Andrew, is that you had no fear of water. And I was the eldest of of five kids, young siblings, and she said we would regularly go to the pool and literally before I could head to the seat, she were already plunked down in the deep end, not the shallow end, being pulled out by a lifeguard or some bystander who was gracious enough to see you sinking to the bottom and rescue this poor child. But you would just find and gravitate and sink down into the deepest pot of water you could find. And we've being conscious of that, particularly with one of our children. It's funny how they're all different, particularly to something like water. Had this uh, one girl, and she wasn't the eldest, so I think she saw you know, the, the elder siblings out swimming in the water, and she'd have no fear whatsoever. So she would head out, and she was a reasonable swimmer, so she'd get to a certain distance, and then all of a sudden it'd be like, oh, I can't swim anymore. And so she'd panic, slowly start to sink, and you'd have to be there ready to rescue her and pull her out when she got in trouble. So there is a good fear, yeah? There's a good respect that we want our children to have that we need to have ourselves when it comes in the natural to certain things. There's also a bad or an unhealthy fear. And we had uh, one child who was the other extreme. I remember a holiday that we'd gone, we were really looking forward to to getting away. We'd headed to the coast as we normally do. It's our go-to, somewhere warm, somewhere on the beach. And I think at this particular time... One of our children was in that 12 to, uh, to 18 month kind of range. And for some reason, this was a shock to us because the kids had always loved the, the sand and the water, but it was something tactile, something about the, the coldness and the sand. But they just, you know, one look at the beach and they were screaming. It was enough. Now, get me, there was some repressed memory, I'm not sure what it was, but you couldn't even put it down on the sand. I mean, it was a complete disaster of a beach holiday because you literally had to walk around carrying her. She was okay there, as long as she didn't see the water. But the sand, the water, anything to do with the beach. And she was completely terrified. And so we said very quickly, well, this is not the sort of fear we want to have in our kids. We want to be able to enjoy a beach holiday. We don't want to have them terrified. And fortunately, that was a phase that came and went very quickly. So there is... A good fear, and we could look at plenty of other examples and instances of that, and there's a bad fear. In this instance, they're both related to the same central reality of water. So we could define it in this way Good fear is that which keeps us in a place or in a perspective that's good, healthy, and right. Bad fear keeps us from a place that is good and healthy and of right perspective. Make sense? There's some fears that we want that are healthy. There's some fears that we never want. And that's why, of course, Paul says to Timothy, you don't want to have a fear of man. That's not going to help you. That is not a good fear. And yet, as we looked as well, 144 plus times in Scripture, it talks about, what well, we do need to have a healthy fear of the Lord. That is something that we need. It's something that was evident in the early church. And if you think about it, either good or bad fear, here's what fear does to us. It causes us to respond in a certain way. It can be in a good way, it can be in a bad way. In a good way, it would be, okay, I have a healthy fear of the water, therefore I don't plonk myself in the deep water if I can't swim. I have a healthy fear of traffic, so I don't just walk across the road without looking to make sure it's safe. Healthy fear of heat, I don't put my hand on hot water things. But it causes us to live and respond in a certain way. A bad fear, a fear of man would cause us to be you know, timid and not able to, to speak and proclaim. It keeps us bondage and in, in bondage and in captivity. So there is a response that happens to either a good or a bad fear. So if we translate that reality of fear in the natural to fear of the Lord, and, and this I think is important for us to grasp. See, sometimes we think, well, and I've heard this explained, well, the fear of the Lord, it's just this sense of awe and wonder, like he's, he's amazing. And yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is that. That's a part of it. But it's so much more. And I would define it this way. It is to be so in awe of him, aware of who he is, his holiness, his wonder, his majesty and his might, that our life is completely recalibrated and rearranged in light of who he is. See, it's more than just awe and wonder. I can sit out on my balconies, I often do, and watch a sunset and, and there is a sense of awe and wonder. There is. It can almost be, well it is at times, it's kind of a spiritual moment. I'm like, God, you're amazing, look at that. But the reality is I'm never going to look at a sunset and come away with my life transformed and changed. My life will never be the same again. I've seen a beautiful sunset. It's, it's a moment of awe and wonder. But it's not, I believe, what the Bible is talking about with this sense of the fear of the Lord. You look, for example, at John the Apostle in Revelation as He has this encounter with the Lord. He's going to get this incredible download about the events that are to, to take place. But first of all, he sees this picture of Jesus. Well, not, sorry, not the picture of Jesus. He's literally in the presence of Jesus. He sees the reality of Jesus. And what's his response? Does he stand there and say, well, this is, this is amazing. Warm fuzzies. It's fantastic. I feel really just moved. It says, he fell on his face as though dead. This is John the Apostle. This is the guy who walked with Jesus. He saw him in the flesh. He knew his voice. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. He was closer to him perhaps than anybody else. He'd seen him transfigured. And yet in this moment of standing before him, It says he falls on his face as if dead. Every other thought, every other reality has gone out the window in light of the glorious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, standing before him in glory. And yet what's fascinating here is, the, the very first thing that Jesus says to him, you can read this Revelation 1.17. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he being Jesus placed his right hand on me. What does he say? He says, do not be afraid. Why does he say that? Well, number one, I think is John was terrified. <laughs> you know, he's on his face. I just, I can't handle it. He's too big. He's too wonderful. It's just, I cannot handle the glory of the living God. He says, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now, look, I'm alive forever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And so you see this incredible tension here. He's afraid. He's, he's terrified. All in one, but a right perspective of God. And the first thing that God says, well, do not be afraid. Do not fear. And I'd, I'd make this assessment that a right fear of God causes every wrong fear to be removed. A right perspective of who he is and an acknowledgement of the greatness and the glory of him causes every other fear to be dismantled and demolished. See, we're no longer afraid of man when we realize that we're in the presence of the almighty God, the one who has all power and authority. We're no longer afraid of death. There's no longer the fear of death when we're in the presence of the one who's alive forevermore. I've risen from the dead and you you will too if you believe in me. We're no longer afraid of punishment when we not only stand in the might and the majesty and terror of his greatness, but then we look into his eyes and the depths of his love and experience the grace and mercy that he gives to us. Does that make sense? The right fear of God causes every wrong fear to be removed. And you see, there's, there's many areas. Let me just give you a few really quick ones and then the one that I want us to dwell upon for a few moments this morning and then we'll bring this time together. There's many areas. As we said, 140 plus references throughout Scripture. You can do a whole survey and study of all the different aspects of the fear of God and the different thing that it produces us. If we have this This right reality, this calibration moment, not just of he's big and, but fall at at his feet as though, you know, you're everything and I'm nothing. That's, That's the reality. That it produces many, many things that are good. Psalm 111, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be wise and to live wise, you cannot do that without a right perspective of God. That's just, that's just the way it is. It's funny, as my kids have got older, I've told some stories of when they were younger, but as they get older, it's amazing how many conversations they have as we launch very tentatively, hesitantly into the teenage years. And they're just so convinced of some reality. Like, Dad, this is the way it is. They've heard something, they believe something. And for them, it is true through the lens of a, a preteen or a young teenage you and for me as I'm looking on and I try and say to them at times I'm like well sweetheart you know I've actually had a few more years on this planet than you I could probably give some wisdom and advice of course in their eyes that just means I'm outdated and irrelevant but there's frustrating moments thinking I do actually know more about this than they do I could actually help them if they were just willing to take my advice, which at times they are, and at times, as teenagers sometimes do, they walk their own path, and I'm ready to help them clean up the mess that might or might not result from their decisions. But there, there is that sense, and if in the natural I have wisdom to share with my children, how much more when we come into the presence of the one who's been around for eternity, the one who breathed the universe into existence, he holds it together. And how arrogant are we at times where we come in and we're like, well, God, we've actually got this pretty well figured out. I mean, maybe there's a few bits on the end that you could help me with, but generally, I'm, I'm okay. See, if you want wisdom, you've got to come from that place of he is God and I'm not. His ways are not my ways, his thoughts are not my thoughts, they're high above. And I fall at his feet as though dead, as in I'm coming with nothing. Lord, I know nothing, you know everything. And from that place, finally, as we seek not to fit God into our paradigm, but seek to allow him to fit us within his, that we find wisdom. So there's wisdom. Wisdom. Paul talks to the Corinthians, and he, he tells the believers this in 2 Corinthians 7.1. He talks about perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Why is it that there is so much sin, not just in the world, but in the church? We could talk about numerous high-profile failures in totally different spectrums of the church each and every year. Why is it? Well, there's many reasons. I hesitate to say that there's one, but here's one that seems to be missing the fear of the Lord, this concept that he is actually a holy God, that he judges the living and the dead, this, this fear that produces something in us that we don't want anything in our lives that would hinder us from his good and perfect plan. Let's, don't let there be a taint of sin or let there be a hatred of sin because you are the one before whom I stand in awe and in wonder and reverence and with my life completely transformed and defined by. We could look at Ephesians 5.21. It talks about submitting to one another in the fear of God. The fear of God affects and impacts the way that we treat and love and respect and honour one another. There's many, many other examples. But here's the one really that I want to spend a few moments just reminding us of. And that is the reality and the link between the fear of God the Lord and this invitation to know His presence in our midst, see all of us I'm sure we would read these accounts in the book of Acts and we'd see well would say, isn't this amazing, hearing these stories of miracles, seeing the works of God? maybe other than the Ananias and Sapphira, we'll just leave that one as the parentheses and move on. But that's salvations and you know, the expansion of the gospel and people whose lives are, are so in love with Jesus and one another that they lay everything down. There's all these incredible accounts that hopefully should stir us of the presence of God at work in the midst of the lives of his people. But I think there's a clear link here that we need to remember. If we want the presence and the power of, of God in our midst, then the clearest path I can see there is we need the fear of God in our midst. We need to come back to this place where our lives are calibrated around him. We're not seeking to kind of fit him in with our agenda and schedules. Where it's gone out the window and we fall on our knees as Moses did before the glory of God, not trying to make him into our nice little golden calf that does what we want it to do. But he cries out and he says, God, we're a sinful people. But if you can use us, then here we are. Let my life be defined by you. I might even get the worship team just to come back up. There's an account in this area that I'm always encouraged by. It's a story of a guy called John Bevere. Does everyone know who John Bevere is? He's a very well-known, famous preacher. He's uh, done a few conferences in Canberra even been to some of his meetings in person but he tells this story of um, this is some years ago I think the early 2000s when he was just kind of hitting the international scene and he did this uh, this trip to Brazil he was asked to go and speak in South America he'd never been there before but you know he he had a a reasonably high profile so they said John would you come and speak we're holding a national conference we're getting all the key church leaders in Brazil as a stadium five ten thousand people was packed out it's the national conference, Brazil, first time there. He's super excited, the, the very first evening that the meetings were to begin. And he turns up and he said, as he describes, he said, we're, we're there. And, you know, they had the, the bee's knees of the, 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 the greatest worship leaders who were there. They had all the, all the people who were anything in the Brazil church. And it was this, this stadium of the who's who, amazing worship team, the lights, the sounds, everything was happening. He's like, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be incredible. What a time in the Lord's presence this will be. And the lights dimmed, the worship started. And, and John said it was the oddest thing because he was standing there in the midst of the, the service surrounded by all these people. The music was sounding amazing. But he's like, there's, there's something missing. There's just, there's just something that's not right. He's like, God, he was just troubled in his heart. He's like, God, What 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 what's going on here? Like, this is all the church leaders. This is people who know you and love you. It's not a, you know, a conference of, of people that they brought in off the street. The music sounding amazing, but there's just no sense of your presence here at all. So he's kind of wrestling through the first couple of songs. They were loud, praise songs, and then the music kind of shifted and they went into some more times of just worship. He's like, ah, oh, here, here it is. This will be where the presence of the Lord is just made known amongst his people. This is where we encounter him. And But he's like, it just got even, even emptier. And the Lord in the midst of that spoke to John and said, John, just have a look around. So he was there obviously in front of the stage. He's the keynote speaker. Never been there before. And he takes a look around and as he looks around the stadium. He said, I couldn't believe what I saw. Like, I was expecting to see people there worshipping. There was people on their phones. He said, I saw people just engaged, huddling little conversations. Someone pops off out to the candy bar, comes back with some popcorn, shares it around. You know, there's little murmurings of conversations and he was, he was so grieved in his heart. So at that moment, the worship stops. I say, well, everybody, this is John Bevere. And he gets up there. He said, I didn't even introduce myself. I was so just like, oh, just annoyed, grieved in the Holy Spirit. And he just said straight away, he said, guys, I've just got to say something. He's like, if, if you were sitting around a dinner table, with your family, let alone a guest of honour and you know, they, they were trying to talk to you and you were just there, you're having conversations, you're sitting on your mobile phones, how many parents love that with your kids you're sitting there and you want to strangle the phone or something else, we won't go there and they're distracted I said, would, would, would you continue in, in that environment? And we're, or if you're visiting you're a visiting dignitary, you, you go and visit some good friends and you know, they knock on the door and they open the door and it's not even hello. It's just like, oh, it's it's just you. <laughs> well, I guess you can come in. We're pretty busy here. We've got a lot going on, but all right. Now, come on in. And he said, you know, if, if there was your president, prime minister, whoever it is, which at that particular time, they loved their president. So if, if you had a dignitary in the room or if you had the Brazil's most famous soccer player, if he walked into this stadium, what would be the response? I mean, there'd be hushed silence. There'd be little, like, moments of reverence. If he came and stood on the stage, you know, there wouldn't be a word spoken. There'd be people hanging off anything that he had to say. And yet he said, we're in the presence of the King of glory, the King of kings. Like, what's going on? And he said, I'm just here to tell you we've got to repent if you'd like to repent stand up he's thinking gosh what's going to happen they're all leaders and pastors three quarters of the room stood up and just began weeping there was just this conviction of the Lord upon their lukewarmness their half-heartedness the Lord said to John lead him in a prayer of repentance and he did he said we've just got to pray this prayer of repentance God save us from our apathy save us from just forgetting who it is that you are just being Flipping, of playing games in your kingdoms, of not recognizing the reality that we come before the King of Kings. And he said before they even said the final amen on that prayer, in his story he said, I've never before or after, I've seen some incredible things in the Lord, but never to this degree. And he said it was just this sound of a mighty, roaring, rushing wind, just Wept across the room. He said there was this manifest presence of God that just came. There's people shaking, weeping, crying down. For the next hour, a couple of hours, people were there. No one was leading. The Lord was just sovereignly moving amongst his people. So here's the point that I want us to grab a hold of. See, there are a few invitations, more incredible but more important, than for us to truly fear God. It's this invitation to what we were created for, this encounter with the living God, to glimpse His greatness, the awesomeness, the wonder, the power, the mercy, the goodness, the loving kindness of God, to see Him fully for who He is and then to live our lives completely in response to that reality of God. And I do believe that it is this kind of fear of the Lord. It's a fear that will strip away the religious facades and restore the glory of God to His church in a way that will cause the world to stand up as they did. We read, like, I don't know what's happening, but God is doing something in the midst of His people. Can we stand together? Let's pray. Just close your eyes. Bow your heads before the Lord. Father, we we never want to be people who play games, put on some sort of a religious facade, or people who take for granted the reality of who you are. Lord, forgive us for those times where we are the people who've opened that door. You're standing there. Oh, it's just you. We've been half-hearted. We've been lukewarm. Lord, we've lost sight in w- whatever way. That, what if that looks like for each of us? Lost that reality of the fear of God. The one before John who knew perhaps any anybody else. Just one moment in your manifest presence and your glory and he falls to his face, God I I know nothing and yet that wonderful invitation as you place your hand on him and you say fear not that fear of the Lord that puts everything else in our lives in right perspective Father we do honor you we come before you with awe and with reverence and I pray that in our lives and in the midst of this church that we would come back to that place where you are the guest of honor where you're the one that we come with such joy to bow before to throw down our crowns before and that where there is that need for us to just repent of anything that has kept us from that place of truly giving you the honor and the glory that you deserve. I pray that we'd be willing to bring those things to you. And that we would be a people who know what it is, as Luke described, a company of people. And the fear of the Lord came upon them. Great awe, a great wonder, a great reverence, the kind of fear that strips away all that's not of you and allows your glory and your presence to once again move in the midst of your people. We ask that. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Jesus' name. We're just going to pray for some people this morning. And I, I just have a a sense on my heart that. If there's anybody here this morning, and there is that sense of, you know you've you've lost that sense of the fear of the Lord. You've lost that sense of awe, you've lost that sense of reverence, that there is that lukewarmness. But this morning you're making that decision, you just feel that drawing from the Lord. Lord, I want my heart to be fully on fire for you. I want that fear of the Lord that recalibrates everything else in my life. I'd love specifically to pray for you. And I'd like also, if there's anybody here this morning and there is an unhealthy fear. It's an unhealthy fear that comes from a perspective and a view of God that's not right. I believe that God wants to this morning to give us a right godly good healthy fear a fear that does break off anything else that would cause us to remain in captivity to keep us from that healthy place and that right view of who he is and who we are so we'll get the prayer teams just to come if any of those things specifically apply, then I just invite you to come forward now and move out of your seats. If there's other things this morning that you'd like prayer for, you're welcome to come to, just our joy and our privilege to, to pray for any and every prayer need that you might have. So if you want prayer, come now. If not, bless you this week. look forward to gathering again with you soon.